just finished up a series through the Psalms of Ascents. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope that you'll take an appreciation for the Psalms, for their significance, as we sing uh, to God and we follow in that. And also as the Psalms minister back to us, and they give us words with which, I think, to appropriately address God. So uh, as you turn to the book of Joshua, I ask that you could please turn to, the cha- to, the, to, the, to Joshua chapter 12. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Joshua 12, and we're going to be uh, going on into the first six verses of chapter 13. So we're covering a lot of ground today, and that's going to kind of be a little bit of the norm uh, for us as we go through the book of Joshua. Um, there's a lot of details here, but in order to see the overall picture, we're gonna, there's going to be some sections that we're going to look at from kind of that thousand foot view. But I'm excited to get back into this book with you um, if you were with us last year, uh, then we started this series last fall, and we got through Joshua 11, uh, and then we took a little break and went to Galatians, and we finished up the Psalms of Ascent, so now we're back, and I'm excited about that. Now, uh, a will is a legal document that governs the distribution of a person's wealth to their heirs when they pass away. And a will makes sure that the will of the person who died is carried out. As with most legal documents, wills really aren't that interesting to read. That is, of course, unless you find yourself mentioned in one. Then, people tend to be all ears. Wills are important, not just because they, uh, dist- they lay out a person's inheritance, but because they're immensely personal. It expresses, in a way, the sort of regard that a person has for those that they leave behind. So they're important. Now, to this point in the book of Joshua, most of what we have studied, most of what we have read, has had to do with Israel's relationship with God and also a recounting of the battles that took place as they secured the land of Canaan. Now, as we start the second half of the book, the focus shifts a little bit from the battles which were fought uh, to the actual distribution of the land. Uh, So in some ways, uh, the second half of the book of Joshua reads a lot like a will. Now, when we we left off our study of the book of Joshua uh, at the beginning of this year, uh, we ended in Joshua 11, verse 23, which summarizes Joshua's work, how he took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. Now, you and I might be pretty content just to leave it right there. That is a nice bow on a pretty package. Uh, Joshua eleven twenty three is nice, it's neat, it's tidy, and since most of us struggle just to pronounce the names of some of the places which are mentioned in this book, it's pretty tempted to come to this point and then just to hit the fast forward button here. But all scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture is therefore useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. By it, the man and the woman of God are made complete and equipped for every good work. We believe that here. And so, we believe that for what Joshua 12 and, and Joshua 13 have to say for us. And that's what we want to see. There are some rich lessons for us in the pages ahead which teach us about the faithfulness of God to his covenant promises and how we as a people are called to respond to that. So today, the majority of our time is going to be looking at Joshua 12. Joshua 12 
functions as a sort of bridge between the battle reports that we've been reading and the detailed list of how the land was exactly distributed among the 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. So while the places and the names are going to sound foreign to you, while a lot of these things, as they're mentioned, you're going to say, I have no idea where that is. These weren't foreign places and foreign ideas to the people who first received them. This was their inheritance. So these words meant the world to them. This is where God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 13 verse 14 takes shape and form. Whereas there in the book of Genesis, God told Abraham to look to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west, that there, this would be the place where his offspring would live. There they would be numerous as the dust of the earth. Now, here in the book of Joshua, those places aren't just general directions. They have names. And the tribes and the families who received them were feeling the tangible benefits of the covenant promise that God had made with their forefathers. The same promises that we read, that Brad read for us in Acts chapter 3 mentioned. Now the main idea of the book of Joshua, if, if you've forgotten since we were last in it, is God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. The message of the book of Joshua is that God is faithful. This book is so important. It's so underappreciated, but it is so important, not just because of the key role that it plays in the storyline of the Bible, but because of the way that it assures us of the greater covenant promises that God has made and secured through the work of Jesus Christ. So as difficult as it may be this morning to read some of the names and the places that are here spoken of, The book of Joshua, and this passage in particular, is very important for us. Just as God worked to bring his people into the land of promise, just as he secured for them an inheritance where they dwell and then dwelled with them in their midst in the temple, so we also can rest assured in the promise he has made of our inheritance in the work of Jesus Christ who makes us citizens and sons and heirs in the kingdom of heaven. So, Let's begin by reading uh, our text this morning. This is a long extended text, so while I usually have you stand uh, as I read, I'm going to go ahead and let you stay seated, Um, but if you would, direct your gaze to your Bibles as I read, starting in Joshua chapter 12, and then on into the first six verses of chapter 13. Now, these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated into possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all that the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chimaroth, eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jishimoth, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edre, and ruled over Mount Hermon, Salika, and all Bashan, to the boundary of the Gesherites and the Machmachathites, and over half of Gilead, to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God to the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Debir, one. The king of Gadir, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makedah, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Ephek, one. The king of Lesharan, one. The king of Madan, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Miron, one. The king of Akshaf, one. The king of Ta'anach, one. The king of Megiddo, one. The king of Kedish, one. The king of Jachnium in Carmel, one. The king of Dor in Naphthor, one. The king of Goyim in Galilee, one. The king of Tirzah, one. In all, 31 kings. Now, Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shehor, which is east of Egypt, northward to the boundary of Ekron. It is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim. In the south, all the land of the Canaanites and their Merah, and belongs to the, the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gibalites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Libo Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon, to Misraphoth, Maim, even all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Well, this is the word of the Lord. I appreciate you bearing with my poor pronunciation. Well, besides highlighting God's covenant faithfulness, the book of Joshua identifies God here as the true owner and the sovereign of the earth. We saw that theme in God's patience and the judgment that he then had on the Canaanites. And then we see that now here in the way that Israel's victories are recounted in Joshua 12. The land is the Lord's, and it is his to give to whom he will. So we see that he expelled the Canaanites with these 31 kings that are here mentioned from the land, and that he gave it to Israel in perfect justice and righteousness. Joshua 12 is sort of an appendix in the book of Joshua, which explains in a compressed fashion how we went from being from, from traveling with the people of Israel coming out of Egypt to their conquest of Canaan to the actual distribution of the land to the 12 tribes. 
Now, our passage breaks up into three distinct sections. In Joshua 12, verses 1 through 6, uh, we are given an account of how God gave Israel victory to Moses and the people, and how he gave the land and the territories of two kings on the east side of the Jordan River to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and then the the half-tribe of Manasseh. Uh, Joshua 12, verses 7 through 22, focus on each one of the kings who were defeated after the people had crossed over the Jordan and actually entered the land of Canaan. And then Joshua 13, verses 1 through 6, explain God's future plans to make Israel possess the whole of the land. And then it actually introduces the distribution of the land, which we'll get into next week. Now, these sections span two different generations. Those who had come out of Egypt, who died in the wilderness, and then those who actually received the land, who entered in and took it. Now, I think you could argue that this actually even expands to a third generation, those who came in, uh, whose parents had waged the war, who had done this conquest, and who were the first to finally and actually live in the land. As a whole, these words together, these sections prove a point, which is the main idea of our passage today, and the main idea of this sermon, which is this, that this passage aims to teach us that God is faithful throughout all generations. God is faithful throughout all generations. God's faithfulness endures. And what I want to do in our time this morning as we look at each one of these three sections is to bring to your attention three points of application which hinge on God's enduring faithfulness. So first, we need to remember that we are one. We are one. Second, be thankful for specifics. Be thankful for specifics. And then finally, trust God for the next generation. Trust God for the next generation. First of all, we need to see that we need to remember that we are one. Uh, Joshua 12, verses 1 through 6, should have a little bit of a familiar sense to you if you're familiar with the Old Testament at all. These two kings, with their territories, are first introduced in Numbers 21 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and chapter 3 which also explain how God defeated them before Israel and how he gave their land over to them. It's not like Joshua is giving us really any new information here, but rather he's confirming to us what we've read elsewhere. These are the lands with their boundaries that the people of Israel came to own while they were still under the leadership of Moses. Now you'll notice two important names here. Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan. Two terrible names, but these are important guys. These are not only the peoples who were defeated by, these are not the only peoples who were defeated uh, by the armies of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt prior to entering the promised land, but they were unique because their territories directly became part of Israel's inheritance after they were defeated. So while this account of Israel's victory over these two kings happened prior to their entrance to the promised land, it's here for a couple of reasons. First, it's here because God's victory over these two kings becomes sort of a calling card that demonstrates his commitment to the defense of Israel. So uh, if you remember back to last year, 
when we were first starting the book of Joshua, we read about how the two spies were sent into the city of Jericho and how when they came to the house of Rahab the prostitute, she told them how the city had been filled with dread because of the way that they had heard about how God had defeated these two kings. Then, in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites come to Joshua and the elders of the people and they say the exact same thing. They had heard about how God had dealt with these two kings across the river. In fact, you'll find God's victory over Og and Sihon celebrated and talked about in the book of Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, 1 Kings, Nehemiah, Psalms, and even Jeremiah. This is all over the Bible. These victories were defining moments in Israel's histories, much like the battles of Saratoga or Gettysburg or Iwo Jima are to our history. Just as God had been with the armies of Israel under Moses, so he had also shown his steadfast faithfulness of bringing them into the land under Joshua. Now it's appropriate to find these two kings and the territories that were part of them here because this is part of the story of how God took Israel from slavery in Egypt and made them to inherit the land that he was bringing them to, going before them as a mighty warrior, showing that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords who rules the world. Which brings us to consider the second reason this section is here. We find these kings and their territories mentioned here because this is part of the land that God gave to the nation of Israel as their inheritance. Besides giving due credit to God for what he did through Moses, the placement of these first six verses makes it abundantly clear that the land that is being given here to these two and a half tribes east of the Jordan was as much God's gracious gift as the land that was west of the Jordan, that this was part of the inheritance. Verse 6 is really, really important here because it legitimizes the claim that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh had on the blessings and the inheritance of God's promise. In the same way that God gave the territories of Canaan that were west of the Jordan River to the remaining nine and a half tribes, so he also gave these territories to these tribes. Now, you may not know why that matters initially, but what you need to understand is there is an, there's, a real, there's an uneasy tension here in the history of this territory, which you might not be aware of, but which you need to know, which our author is trying to ease here. You see, this territory, which was known as the land of Gilead, was not a part of Canaan proper. And so these two and a half tribes which received this territory as their inheritance got it under some uneasy circumstances. The tribes of Reuben and and Gad, they had a lot of livestock. They were rich with, with sheep and goats and cows and so on. And this land, the land of Gilead, was good for that. And so rather than go into the land of Canaan, Reuben... Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh decided they wanted their inheritance there and now. Now, that should strike you. Imagine your relatives moving here from out of state because they say they want to be close to you. But then at the last minute, they decide they want to live in a city that's about an hour away because they like the scenery there better. And just listen to what uh, these tribes said to Moses um, and, 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 and it may qualify it in what I think is one of the most awkward conversations in the Bible. If we have 
found favor in your sight. Let this land be given to your servants for possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. What? Do not take us across the Jordan? What are these guys thinking? Moses died longing to cross that river. He wanted to go in. God wouldn't permit him because he disobeyed. These tribes chose not to receive the inheritance that was on the west side of the river because they said they were satisfied with what the land on the other side, the land which they already had taken, could offer them. Looks like they're trying to get an easy time, doesn't it? They were, their hearts were satisfied with something that was lesser. As a result, these tribes cut dangerously close to committing some terrible sins against God and their brothers, which are made apparent in the way that Moses responded to this request. He lays out three charges. In the moments before the battle for Canaan had started, here are these two and a half tribes flirting with laying down their weapons and staying at home in comfort. Hmm, that's not good. Second, they were putting themselves in a position where they could easily abandon God and become like the nations around them. They were putting physical barriers between them and the temple. Not a recipe for success. Third, Moses says that their actions could have a discouraging effect to make this second generation, the second generation that was ready to go in and to fight, behave just like their fathers before them at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go into the land because they were afraid. So that this is uneasy. God, in his mercy, did grant them this request, but only after they had swore that they would leave their families there in the land of Gilead and that they would cross over armed before their brothers and that they would fight and that they would not return home until the task was done. The land of Gilead may have been a great place for raising livestock, But you get the feeling here that these tribes really traded the greater for the lesser. Uh, What's more, they paved a path for tension to develop between their descendants and the descendants of the tribes who did enter the land. Now we'll see this as we get to the end of the book of Joshua, how these tribes actually, when they were going back home, decided that they would build an altar on their side of the river, which looked exactly like the altar that was at the tabernacle. As a witness that they were indeed part of the nation of Israel. They were afraid that as time passed, future generations might try to exclude their children from the fellowship of Israel and the fellowship of God at the temple because of their decision to stay at Gilead. By including this account of how God defeated these Amorite kings, how he gave this land to these tribes, the author is making a statement of inclusion for these tribes. As legitimate as the nine and a half tribes who crossed over and took possession of the land there was legitimately their inheritance, so also was this land. However the other tribes might have felt about this decision, or however we may feel about this decision, we're we're shown undoubtedly that these tribes were all part of the people of God, that they were heirs to his promise and the inheritance of his presence among them. Now that's important. So we saw in Psalm 132 last week, unity is a gift from God, a gift which he bestows on his people as a matter of his grace as a work of his salvation. And within the church at large, 
you will find lots of disagreements on lots of fundamental issues. Don't ever let anyone tell you that doctrinal distinctions don't matter because they do. Even still, there is something for us to learn about this inclusion of Gilead and these two and a half tribes here and and how we think about the unity which we have with Christ and how that ought to balance our zeal for the truth with Christian charity as we share that with one another. You can talk to me all day, but you will not convince me that these tribes chose something better by wanting to remain across the river. They opened themselves up for all kinds of hurt, but their bad decision did not end with them being excluded from the inheritance of God's promise. It was, we might argue, unwise, but not ultimately sinful. We might go so far as to say that these tribes were in error but not in a way that led them to be excluded from God's fellowship. Now, there are people, Christians, who hold certain doctrinal distinctives, which I believe are in error. Now, let me be clear here. I am not talking about issues which are vital, foundational convictions of the Christian faith. I'm not talking about compromises of the gospel of grace without which there is no hope of salvation. I'm talking about doctrinal issues and practices that fall on the spectrum of orthodoxy but which we might find ourselves in disagreement with each other on. These brothers and sisters are convinced of these positions for the same reason that I am convinced of my position because I believe in the rule and the authority of the Bible. But even so, on these issues, as we look at what the Bible says, we find that we come to different conclusions. These may be issues of conscience, like whether or not a Christian can or ever should drink alcohol. It could be an issue of doctrine, like the relationship between God's sovereignty and human free will. Or it could be an issue of church practice, like when a person should be baptized. These issues are important. It's important that we're in conversation with each other about them. But I think that this passage teaches us to be on guard, that as we are zealous for the truth, we also ought to be on guard about falling into a prideful sort of dogmatism that leads to hostility against other fellow believers, brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. You see, when Christians disagree on issues like this, there is always an opportunity for one party to look down on the other, to consider themselves to be superior because they feel like they have a better grasp on the truth. And in the midst of that, pride slips in. Hateful debate rages, and then the church gets distracted from its primary goal, which is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you, Satan is more than happy for you to use your theological prowess to cut fissures into the church of Christ. We must resist this temptation to want to build ourselves up by being, making sure we're known as being right. Be zealous for truth, but be careful about how you wield that sword. Remember, if you do have, if you indeed, let's just give you the benefit of the doubt, if you do have a better grasp on the truth than your brother or your sister, You have that grasp on the truth because of grace, not because of your achievement. Let that inform how you speak to your fellow Christians. We must remember that the single point of distinction which we have, those of us who have confessed faith in Jesus, the most fundamental part of who we are as Christians is that we are joined to Christ. 
We must regard other believers, those whom we agree with and those whom we disagree with accordingly, which means we must always adopt a certain amount of charity towards one another that seeks to build one another up in the truth, not to tear one another down. We must remember that if we have repented and trusted in Jesus for our salvation, if we have been born again, if we have his spirit dwelling within us, then we are all one. We are one by his spirit. We are one in his baptism. We are one in the covenant of his blood. We are one in his service. And we are one in the inheritance of eternal life, which we have through Jesus. It's said that the great preacher, George Whitfield was asked one day whether or not he expected to ever see the evangelist and pastor, John Wesley, in heaven. Now, if you're unfamiliar with those two uh, great preachers that are known from the great American Great Awakening, um, then you'll know that Whitfield and Wesley disagreed with each other on plenty of points, most notably that Whitfield held to a different view of how God's grace works in a person's salvation than Wesley did. And it was no secret that they were divided on this issue, that they debated one another. But when Whitfield was asked this question, his response was amazing. This is the way he said. This is what he said. No, I do not expect to see him in heaven. I expect that he will be much closer to the throne of Christ than I will be. Brothers and sisters, that is Christian charity. We must hold to our distinctives. And we must stand by our convictions. But as we do, let us remember that Christ is our judge. He is our head. And if we are in him, then we have one hope and one inheritance which we share with one another. Now the second point, the second point of application from this passage that I want to bring to your attention is to be thankful for specifics. Be thankful for specifics. Now, if you're like me, I have a bad habit about flipping through news stories. And I'm doing that like I'm on my phone. Especially if it's on social media. I'll flip through, I'll read the titles, and then I'll move on. The good thing is about that is that I can filter through what I actually want to read and, uh, and just kind of get to the gist of things. The bad thing is that I can jump to all sorts of conclusions just by reading the headline. You're never really going to appreciate a developing story or why that story matters if you only ever read headlines. You can't grasp the beauty of Shakespeare if you only read the cliff notes. If there were ever a verse that gave the long and short of the book of Joshua, it's probably Joshua 11.23, which says, it, it accounts for every aspect of this. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the tribal allotments. And the land had rest for war. That pretty much sums up the book. But if that's all you read, You'd miss the beauty of the incredible work that God was doing in making Israel inherit the land and, and inherit the promise that he had given to them. Joshua 12, 7-23 makes sure that we get all those details. The focus in this section is really on Joshua. Although he's not referred to as the servant of the Lord here, the way Moses is in verse 6, it's clear that Joshua's leadership is completing what Moses began. Joshua is obeying God. This is where God's promise to make Israel inherit the land becomes a reality. And in verses 7 through 8, we read about the boundaries which were established after Joshua's conquest. 
And then in verse 8 through 22, we are presented with a list of 31 kings, each one being identified by their city, whom Joshua and the people fought and overthrew. Now, 31 kings. Let that sink in for a moment. If all we were told by Joshua is that he led Israel into the land, that God gave them victory over their enemies, and that's how Israel came to live in the land of promise, you would not appreciate the size of this victory, would you? Football is back. If you're the kind of person who only likes to watch the Super Bowl or just the commercials of the Super Bowl, that's fine. But you just aren't going to appreciate what makes a game like that significant, the way that watching that someone who has watched the team struggle from training camp and fight through their schedule from the very beginning to get a chance to play for that title, let alone try to win it. You're, that person is going to really appreciate the significance of that game. This is an impressive list of enemies who fell to Joshua and the people. They fell not because Israel was bigger or better or stronger. They won because God fought for them. He intervened for them. He did everything he said he was going to do. And as long as he was with Israel, no one could withstand them. And therefore, Israel took the land according to his promise. This passage is like one of those battle flags waving proudly, with the, engraved with all the names of the fallen enemies of God's people, declaring the victory that God had achieved as he went before them to secure their inheritance. The message of Joshua shifts here from God telling Joshua and the people what he was going to do for them to extolling him for the way he had delivered on those promises. The faithfulness of God is being put on display for us in tremendous fashion. Now, you and I have so many reasons to be thankful to God and to give Him praise. We've done that this morning as Brad led us in a prayer of thanksgiving. I wonder, though, how often as we bow our heads, how often do you find yourself praying with these sweeping generalities? Now, it is not wrong to give God thanks for the food he provides, or for the breath that we breathe, or for the way that he keeps us safe. We should absolutely do that. But I think that sometimes we grow to rely on certain formulas of thanks so that we rattle off words of thanks that aren't really driven from a heart of thanks. And then we wonder to ourselves why we feel like our prayer life and our walk with God feels so stale. Let's take a cue from Joshua 12. Let's learn to slow down in our prayer life. Let's learn to relish the details of God's work in our lives. Let's explore based on the conviction that He is the giver of all good things into the very reaches of our lives. And then rather than just rattling off truisms to God in our prayers, let's thank Him for the details of our day. There, this is something that I love. I, I love hearing other Christians talk about their testimonies. That's why I love, I love hearing people talk not just about doctrinal truth, but about how those truths are impacting the way that they live. Last night we got the privilege of, of hearing Russ and Sue celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. And Russ and Sue are not here right now, but I'm so thankful for getting to listen to how God worked significantly in their lives. And how they, how they talked, how they invited their friends up to come and talk about what God had done, how they had watched as God had worked in Russ and Sue's life. 
And the whole evening really kind of became a little bit of a worship service because we weren't hearing about how Russ and Sue had just endured. We were hearing about how God preserved them, how he saved them from their sin, and how they were flourishing in the knowledge of this relationship with Jesus. Getting to thank God for those details is a high privilege. Every good and perfect thing comes from God. When we take time to slow down, to hear the individual notes that are being played in the harmony of his work, then we begin to appreciate the extent to which God is working in our daily lives. And that fuels thankfulness. So let's take a break from skimming over the headlines of God's work. And let's appreciate the details of the story of the glory of Christ that is being played out in each one of the lives of his people. So when you give thanks to God, give thanks to him for the specifics that are in your life. Finally, the third point of application we have from this is that we are called to trust God for the next generation. Now, most of the commentators that I consulted on this passage see a very clear break between chapter 12 and chapter 13, and they are right to see that. But uh, chapter 13 is the start of a major new section which details uh, how the land that was on the west side of the Jordan River was distributed. And that's what we're going to get into over the next few weeks. Even so, I chose to go ahead and look at the first six verses here because I think there's a key connection between the way that Joshua has been accounting for the land that was given under Moses, for how he talks about the kings and the territories that were secured under him, and then for the work that still remains. The chapter starts out here by telling us that Joshua had gotten old. Old enough that God tells him, Hey, Joshua, you're old. I'm just saying, when the Ancient of Days says, you're old, you must be old. Now, the reason this is significant is because there is so much more work to be done in the land. In verses 2 through 6, we get a considerable list of people and places which are still there whom Israel has not taken over yet. And we know, now I know you may not be familiar with the Ammonites and Sihon and Og, but you have heard of the Philistines. These people are going to become an issue for Israel. Now, all this we know was according to God's plan. God told the people in Exodus 23 and then in Deuteronomy 7, he would not give the land over to Israel all at once, lest the land become too much for them. So there's no contradiction between when we read that Israel possessed the land, but that there were still places and peoples in Canaan which had been designated to be conquered in the future. And despite the fact that there were Philistines, Geshurites, Sidonians, and others still in the promised land, God comes to Joshua and tells him to go ahead and allot the land to Israel as an inheritance according to what he had commanded him. And Joshua is one of the very few people in the Bible who is commended in everything that is said about him. He had been extremely careful to do everything that God told him to do. And here is the completion of everything Joshua had been instructed to do. This is the culmination of Joshua's life as a warrior, as a leader, and as a servant of God. Now was the time for the land to be distributed among the tribes according to the promise God had first given to Abraham. Now, to do this, this took faith. Because verse 1 makes it very clear that Joshua is old which means that he's not going to play a part in driving out the rest of the enemy peoples that are still in this land. His work on the battlefield is done. 
Now it's time for him to distribute the inheritance to God, trusting that God is going to complete what he started. As disappointing as I imagine Joshua may have felt at this moment in his life, knowing that his role was about to be finished, what I've come to appreciate about this particular moment in the book of Joshua is the way that it exposes us to the reality that all this came about not because of most, not because of Moses, not because of Joshua, but completely because of God. God was the one who rescued the people from Egypt. God is the one who brought them through the wilderness to the land of promise. God is the one who drove out these nations that were bigger and stronger and fiercer than Israel. And now, God is telling Joshua that he is going to be the one to see this task through. In fact, he says, I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. To do this, Joshua was going to have to entrust God with the future generation. He had seen God's mighty works from the terrors of the plagues in Egypt to the banks of the Red Sea to the slopes of Mount Sinai to the walls of Jericho and beyond. Joshua had experienced firsthand the amazing power of God and he was able to follow through to go ahead and give as an inheritance to these tribes, these lands which had not yet been conquered. And he was able to do that because he trusted God's faithfulness for the future generation. As we think about that, I'm going to close this morning with three thoughts for you. First, to our older generation. I know your concern about the future of the church. I have heard from you about your concern for your kids, for the future generations, about what it may cost, even in the near future, for them to follow Jesus. I have talked to you, and I have heard how you talk about what you fear may happen when you are gone, should Jesus continue to tarry. There are lots of things to be concerned about. I want to know, I want to know for fact that the kids who are in our church, my kids among them, are going to follow Jesus, that they are going to love him, that they are going to experience the joy that I have found and experienced in which you have found and experienced in him for themselves, and that they will count it his call on their life to take up a cross and to follow him as a light thing because they count everything as lost for the surpassing joy of knowing him. That's what I want to know. That's what I pray every night for our kids. The fact that I have no power to make that happen twists my stomach in knots and it only tightens as I see the pressure that the world around us is putting on them to conform to it. Joshua faced real swords and real arrows that were shot at him. He fought in some of the most epic battles that the world has ever witnessed. He was in every way a man of action. But at the end of the day, ultimately, he was a man of faith. He had faith in the faithfulness of God. He knew that Israel's future was secure because he knew the Lord who had chosen her as his own possession. And so, when Joshua stood at the end of his life and he saw this task undone and God said to him, I will do this. He is able to say in return, yes, Lord. He was able to entrust the people he loved to the grasp of a loving and saving God. 
the task that God sets before his people will be executed with precision. And we can entrust our kids and their future to him. His hand does not grow lax. His grip does not slip. They are safer in his arms than they are in yours. He raises up generations and he calls his people by name. We can trust him with the future because he is faithful. We have no other choice. We must take hold of his promise. Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now to our younger generation. Guys, the faithfulness of your parents does not ensure yours. Many of you are at a point in your life where you are being challenged to think hard about where you stand. You need to know and understand that you cannot be in love with the world and in love with Jesus. You're going to have to pick a side. Now you have seen the gospel modeled out before you. But I want to challenge you this morning. Take hold of that for yourself. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And if you have believed, resolve this morning to live with all your might and the strength that he gives you to live with one great purpose, to know him and to love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. There is so much more work to be done in this world. Your life will not be wasted in the service of King Jesus. Whatever he calls you to do, do it first and foremost as he calls you to come and follow him. Now finally, I'm going to remind you all, I'm going to close by reminding you all that not one of us is necessary for God to accomplish his purposes. Not one of us. Now this is something I have to preach to myself on a regular basis. Because there is so much that we tend to pull on ourselves and say, I have to control this. That sort of of control is an illusion. I have to remind myself on a regular basis that God called me to shepherd, but you are all his sheep. God didn't need Joshua to do any of this. He chose him graciously. And he used Joshua powerfully. It's easier to trust God with the uncertainties of the future when we remember we are simply instruments in his hand and his will will always be done. We get the privilege of being part of that story. And that's why I love being part of this church. Because God is writing a story here in this community with this church for his glory and the glory of his kingdom. And we ought to all remember that. That it doesn't come down to each one of us. It comes down to the faithfulness of God. Just as Joshua got to rest in the knowledge of the faithfulness of God, a faithfulness that endures through all generations, so we also get to rest in the work of Jesus Christ, assured of his victory in the knowledge of the eternal life he secured for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we have so many reasons to give you thanks. But above all of them this morning, Father, we consider your faithfulness to your promises. We thank you, Father, that you are not limited from one generation to another, but that you work out your perfect purposes in all generations and that they stand because you are faithful. We ask, Father, that you would give us courage, 
Courage to speak boldly. Courage to answer the call. Courage to stand for truth and for righteousness. Showing Christian charity towards all. But standing and willing to follow on the path of the cross that Jesus calls us to walk. Father, we beg you to work through us as your church. And as we look at the week that stands before us, we ask that this week will be a week of victory for the kingdom of God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.